Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times, back from sabbatical. In this week's podcast, we're looking at the legacy of the British Empire and its impact on the country of today. My guest is Satnam Sanghera, a journalist for The Times and before that, The Financial Times, and author of a new book, Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain. Did, for example, memories of imperial grandeur play a role in the vote for Brexit? Is racism in modern Britain inherited from the empire? Or has Britain, more positively, actually done a good job of creating a successful multiracial and post-imperial society? Ripped to the ground in just seconds. This was an historic moment. Last summer, an 18-foot statue was pulled down in Bristol in the west of England and chucked into the sea. This 17th century slave trader has stood for more than 120 years. It now lies at the bottom of the city's harbour. Edward Colston, born in 1636, was a great benefactor to Bristol. But he was also a slave trader, and many Bristolians felt that his statue should no longer be standing in their city. The attack on the Colston statue was part of a turbulent year of debate in Britain about the legacy of imperialism. For a conservative, patriotic politician like Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the British Empire's a tricky subject. Here he is discussing the imperial legacy in a speech he made to the Tory party conference in 2016 when he was Foreign Secretary. Every day I go to an office so vast that you could comfortably accommodate three squash courts. And, and so Amidst the characteristically bombastic and jokey language, the, you can hear Johnson trying to do several things at once. I, I sit at the desk First, he invites his audience to take pride in the grandeur of Britain's imperial past. The very seat I occupy was once the nerve centre of an empire that was seven times the size of the Roman Empire at its greatest extent under Trajan, was it, Hadrian? I can't remember. And when I go into the, the map room of Palmerston, I can't help remembering that this country over the last two centuries has directed the invasion or conquest of 178 countries, that is most of the members of the, of the UN, uh, which is obviously not a point... But I'm then Johnson says that, of course, the end of empire was a good thing, and finally tries to suggest that the fact that Britain once ruled a vast empire is a good reason to believe in the country's greatness today. Those days are gone forever. Those days are gone forever. And it is a profoundly good thing that they are gone. And yet it would be a fatal mistake now to underestimate what this country is doing or what it can do. The fact that Satnam Sanghera and I are able to have a conversation about the legacy of empire is, in itself, an indirect consequence of empire. Our parents emigrated to this country from former British colonies, mine from South Africa, his from India. Yet throughout much of my childhood, I can't say that I thought much about the British Empire. It felt like something that belonged very firmly in the past. So I began my discussion with Satnam Singera by asking why he feels that the legacy of empire still defines modern Britain. We tend to forget 
or deliberately not notice that we were the country that had the biggest empire in human history. That's quite strange. I think we see ourselves primarily as the country that won World War II. And what that does, it helps us forget that there was a time that we were as racist as the Germans were during World War II. But then if we do remember empire, it's in this strange kind of balance sheet idea that you can somehow weigh the bad things against the good things and come to a kind of overall five-star rating for empire, which is really dysfunctional because, you know, 500 years of history is not a kettle you bought at Argos, you know, it's much more complicated. Yeah, and one of the things I liked about the book was that although you have your views about particular episodes, and I wouldn't say it was free of moral judgment, you do resist this idea that you can come to some overall balance sheet approach, because as you say, it's complicated and it took place over many centuries, and that there are in fact two empires and, and some debate about when it started and when it ended. Yeah, for decades, we've had this view of empire that it should either instill pride or shame. It's all about our feelings. And I think that gets us nowhere. It just leads us into kind of conflict. And, and in my book, I guess I'm talking about the legacies of empire, which you can talk about, about whether they're good or bad, because these are things we live with. And I think that's a much more functional way of looking at it. I mean, when I started thinking about empire four years ago, I was desperate for a book that wasn't political, that just gave you the facts in a kind of neutral way. And hopefully I've got something resembling that. Yeah, no, no. In fact, I must say that as a reader, one of the things I was grateful for was that it took a lot of questions that I have been interested in, like how much of British wealth is derived from slavery, a number of other questions. And you sort of done the reading for us and um, often summarised the debates in a rather elegant way. I'm so glad you mentioned that wealth thing because that took me five months. The original chapter was 40,000 words long. I think in the end it's 7,000. And my editor still wanted me to get rid of most of it. But I wanted to answer those kind of questions that you mentioned. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely crucial. And as you say, it has such an important contemporary resonance because although we've both been saying in a way it's best to avoid facile moral judgments, actually the question of how much of the wealth we see around us in the UK derives from slavery. It's hard to avoid having some kind of moral element to that question. So let me ask you, is Britain's wealth built on empire and more specifically on slavery? I guess the analogy I use in the chapter is, it's like trying to take the egg out of a baked cake. You're never going to get a precise amount. People try to, and people talk about how we owe $777 trillion in reparations for slavery, things like that. I think the bigger the figure, the less you can trust it. But you can look at all sorts of things in Britain which point towards how much wealth came from empire. You can look at the size of Liverpool, a city that was built on trade with empire. Glasgow, the second city of empire. And you could look at individuals like Lord Clive and look at the, all the wealth that he brought over. I think the equivalent of 700 million pounds. You can look at the Pitt diamond, the diamond that built the family wealth of the Pitts who produced two prime ministers. I mean, that was a legacy that came from empire. And you can look at companies like Liberties, of course, which was set up to import textiles from Southeast Asia. And the building itself was built out of a boat, which is called the HMS Hindustan. I love that fact. Um, but there's also other companies like Shell. I didn't realize Shell actually began as a company that imported shells from the Far East. I had no idea. And then it became something much bigger. And of course, the National Trust recently tried to catalog all its properties that had links to colonial times. And it worked out that a third of its 
properties had links to that time. And uh, so I think you can point to individual things, but you should avoid big numbers and you should avoid claims like, you know, all of our wealth comes from slavery or all of our wealth comes from empire. I think you can't really just sustain that kind of conclusion. And, you know, I, th- I think in the course of the writing of your book, maybe it shows a good journalistic instinct, the empire debate really, really hotted up in Britain. Do you have a, a, an understanding why, having, I think, accurately said the British weren't that interested in empire, they suddenly have become interested in empire? What's going on? Why is it suddenly all around us? Yeah, it's been quite strange for me, because when I began writing the book, it was a really esoteric subject, and my friends couldn't really understand why I was doing it. I think I did a reading about a year ago, more than a year ago, where the people there were just confused. They didn't know whether I was writing a memoir or whether it was history or what. But then I guess what happened was Black Lives Matter. And suddenly, towards the end of my book, you know, people were tearing down statues and anything that had a link to colonialism was deemed evil. And there was talk about how modern racism, you know, systemic racism is caused by the systemic racism of empire and so on. So there's suddenly this massive interest, mainly among young people. But then you've got the huge backlash, mainly from, I guess, English nationalists, a certain sect of the Conservative Party who have tried to fight back. You know, So you have Boris Johnson talking about how he's going to protect the statue of Winston Churchill with his last breath. You know, you've got Robert Jenrick writing columns about how he's going to introduce legislation to protect statues in the week we had the highest death rate from COVID in the world. And I think they do that, A, to kind of counteract the woke activists, but B, it just plays well for them in focus groups. You know, there's an idea that if you defend British imperial history, you're defending Britain. It's a really stupid idea. How are you meant to defend 400 or 500 years of history? You know, what are you proud of? Are you proud of slavery? Are you proud of abolition? Are you proud of Sadiq Khan? It makes no sense, but it plays really well. Yeah. And as you say, I think you're right. Black Lives Matter has been very important in crystallising the debate. And a lot of the debate is now around statues, the statue of Churchill being protected, but also the ripping down of the statue of Colston, the slave trader in Bristol, the campaign in Oxford for roads must fall. What's your view on these statues? I mean, there is a big statue of Robert Clive outside the Foreign Office in Britain, the, the major imperialist in India. Do you think these statues should be coming down? I actually wrote a chapter about statues, but then I didn't include it because I I concluded that actually the debates that they provoked are really interesting and huge, but statues in themselves aren't that interesting in that basically street furniture. It's much more important to think about how our racism comes from empire, how much of our wealth comes from empire, how our multiculturalism is explained by empire. And statues aren't massively significant. And when it comes to the question of whether you should tear them down or not, I think Woke people like me and perhaps you fall into a trap because once you start talking about tearing down statues, you you face the accusation that you're trying to delete history. And actually, what you should do is put up statues. You know, you should put up statues of all the imperial figures of color who've been forgotten throughout history, the slaves, things like that. It's much more constructive. I think it doesn't take us anywhere to talk about, you know, taking statues down. But if we've got to have that conversation, I'm generally in favor of not tearing them down and putting them in context. Although, then again, if, you know, if Lord Clive was torn down, I can't say I'd mourn it. You know, that statue, when it was put up, was really controversial because Lord Clive wasn't a popular man in his lifetime. The Viceroy of India himself, at the time, said it was unnecessarily provocative to put that statue up. 
And I think about it quite a lot because I guess Rishi Sunak has to look at that statue every day of his life. And Clive was a sociopath, a man who didn't even like Indians, a man who fleeced India to the tune of hundreds of millions of pounds. And so I guess I'm in favour of more proactive options. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Rishi Sunak. And, you know, one of the aspects of the debate about empires, as you say, it's unavoidably also a debate about where Britain is now. There's recently been this report on race in Britain put out by the government, which its opponents saw as very much an apologia and as a way of sort of airbrushing uh, racism in the UK. On the other hand, the supporters of the report, or more generally those who take a more optimistic view of Britain, would point to the fact, you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is of Indian origin. You've got cabinet members like Priti Patel, Home Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng in the cabinet, and indeed Sadiq Khan from the Labour Party as London's mayor. Do you think that Britain is becoming a less racist society? There's a couple of good things in that report, in that it doesn't believe in the acronym BAME. I agree with that. It points out that certain ethnic groups have done really well. And I think British Hindus, British Sikhs have done very well. But I do still think there is systemic racism in Britain, mainly towards black people and certain Asian groups. And I think we have systemic racism because we had the institution of empire. I argue in the book, you know, that the racism of empire was replicated in post-war Britain. You can trace it, you know, the racial violence towards ethnic groups in empire was replicated in the Paki bashing and the Wog bashing that happened in the 70s and 80s. You have the fear of mixed race relationships. I mean, so many race riots in Britain began when black men or brown men were seen with white women. And that was an attitude of empire that came straight into post-war Britain. And then you have the color bar. At the height of empire, brown people weren't allowed to socialize with white people. You know, they had separate clubs, separate areas of housing. Exact same thing happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, in my hometown, Wolverhampton, working men's clubs had a color bar until 1984. And then, of course, you've got the racial stereotypes and, you know, how certain races like black people don't work hard unless you compel them. The idea of we Sikhs as a martial race was created by imperial Brits, you know, and that attitude persists now in modern Britain. And I think it's obvious that we've got a problem. And the reason we have a problem is because we had empire. And interestingly, a lot of similar reports have come to the conclusion that we need to teach empire more. And yet this report says, actually, we've got no problem with that education and doesn't believe in decolonizing the curriculum. And, um, you know, talks about how slavery should be reimagined as the Caribbean experience. And so I just think it's a massive missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, there's a nice quote, actually, in your book on the relationship between empire and racism, I think from Salman Rushdie, where he says, four centuries of being told you are superior to the fuzzy wuzzies leaves their stain. And put like that, it seems obvious. I mean, people don't change overnight. Racism can improve and racial attitudes do change, but they do, as Rushdie puts it, leave their stain. Totally. I, I think there's been a, there's a long history in this country of not facing up to the fact that we have racism. When we abolished slavery, that became the main narrative, almost so much that it's as if we had slavery just so we could be great by abolishing it, you know? And I, I feel like this report is a continuation of that denial. And I, I think it, it's not just about abolition, it's also about World War II again, the fact that we beat the evil racist Germans. And this has helped to create this idea that we are beyond racism. When empire in the 19th century, at least, at least for 100 years, was willfully white supremacist. They were proud of it. They said it. They wrote reports and analysis about 
how the different races differed. And um, to deny that is just ridiculous. Which brings us uh, again to contemporary politics. Brexit's the single biggest kind of political event over the last decade, maybe more, in the UK. Do you buy into the argument often made by Remainers that it reflected a kind of imperial legacy, that uh, there was a sense that Britain was too grand for the EU? I do buy that. But in a way, I feel like it's the least interesting thing in the book. But also it's been a bit annoying in that the political reviewers of the book have all gone for that and seem to imply that it's all about me arguing that Brexit's about imperialism. I actually think it's the least important point. But it's obviously the case. I mean, this talk about global Britain, this talk about us being a great trading nation. And in Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, we have two of the most imperial politicians we've had in, in modern times. You know, Boris writing books about Churchill in his spare time, talking about flag-waving piccaninnies, trying to read out a Kipling poem in Burma, and Jacob Rees-Mogg writing these nostalgic books about Victorians in his spare time. And so we've got two figures there who are seeped in imperial nostalgia, and they're leading this movement. And I, just, I feel like it's undeniable that empire is involved in their psychology. But that's an interesting way of putting it, because you say involved in their psychology, because I think that if that's put to them, they would deny it quite vehemently. They would say it's absurd that we're trying to recreate the empire, etc. And they may even mean that. But you think it's subtler than that. Totally. And also Brexit happened for a million different reasons. You know, I'm from Wolverhampton. I know a load of Asians who voted for Brexit for all sorts of strange reasons. So to say it's all about imperial nostalgia is clearly false. I just feel like it was one of the influencing factors. Yeah. And I mean, I think you put it again quite nicely in the book where you say that for Britain, EU membership felt like a demotion after empire. Absolutely. It's that Nigel Farage quote, isn't it? He said that, you know, we've managed to achieve this without a single bullet being fired. And that's taking the language of colonialism and fighting against colonialism and applying it to Brexit. And I think I found about 20 examples of that. Like psychologically, because empire is the biggest thing we've ever done, even though sometimes we forget it, it shapes the way we see the world. And I feel like Brexiteers, that's the way they see the EU and themselves. But again, I think many foreigners, you know, who might be listening to this podcast would find its starting premise slightly surprising because I'm often told, oh, the British have never got over empire. They're obsessed by their imperial past. And I think you might agree with the first statement that they haven't really got over empire. But also you're, you're arguing that there's an element of imperial amnesia. So how do you balance those two, this idea that it's everywhere, but it's also not taught? Yeah, I think you need an element of amnesia to have the nostalgia. You know, you can only be nostalgic about something if you forget some of the dark moments. But actually, one of the key moments for me was reading your column about how Tony Blair, in his autobiography, says that he didn't know much about the imperial history of China when he was handing back Hong Kong to the Chinese, which is incredible because in China, the opium wars are really well taught, perhaps with a slight propaganda edge, but people know they happened. Whereas in Britain, even the prime minister didn't know about them. And that's the weird amnesia we have. But it extends way beyond that. I mean, Winston Churchill, for example, you know, our most famous in Britain, he was a massive imperialist. And I guess people are only just beginning to realize that. And um, then there's, of course, the imperial contribution to World War One and World War Two. I mean, I've sat through probably 70 Remembrance Day services in my life, and not once has anyone mentioned the imperial troops, the tens of thousands of people of colour who fought 
alongside the British for a nation that colonized them. And there's so many other examples. Then there's a way we make endless programs about the Indian railways. You know, it's one of the most popular tropes on BBC One and BBC Two is to have a white presenter coming off a train in India talking about how Britain had given India this gift. When actually the story is much more complicated and the British didn't build the railways as a gift. They were built mainly for military reasons and to get resources out of India very quickly. But I think this amnesia seeps through the whole of British life, combined with a curious nostalgia as well. Mm. And again, I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that the book is an anti-imperial book. I don't think it is, but I don't think it's pro-empire either. I mean, it tends to be a balanced account. But in that balanced account, there are truly horrifying episodes. Two that stick in my mind are the effect of genocide in Tasmania, but also the behaviour of individual slaveholding plantation owners in Jamaica and so on in the Caribbean. And those things are really not discussed in the UK. No, I guess if I am slightly, you know, neutral, it's probably because I'm a Sikh. And the Sikhs in empire had a very complicated position in that, you know, they fought against empire, but also they took the side of the British during the mutiny of 1857. They fought for the British in huge numbers in both world wars. And there's an argument that actually Sikhism grew massively during the late stage of empire because we were so indulged by the British. And I guess that's perhaps why I've, I managed to navigate this very complicated story in a hopefully balanced way. But yeah, I don't think you can take away feeling entirely because when I read about Sikhs being strapped to the end of cannons and blown to pieces as a punishment so they wouldn't have a proper funeral, you know, it's hard not to have really strong feelings about that because it's also not that long ago. The British Empire was acting terribly towards Kenya, the Mau Mau in Kenya in the 1950s at the same time that black people were facing racial violence in London. So when people say, oh, this is a long time ago, to me, it doesn't feel like it was a long time ago. No, and I think that the book um, balances the, the personal and the objective quite carefully and skillfully. But it, one of the things that kind of amused me is that I think the most passionate personal statement is actually in a footnote where you talk about this argument that you are often told, come on, you should be grateful for empire. You've lived a lot better in Britain than you ever would have in India. And I think you, you well, if I can quote it, you said, yes, I've had a better life than I would probably have had in India, but I was born here, not India. I am British. And I'm as entitled to comment on my home nation as the next man. And the endless insistence that I display my gratitude is rooted in racism. So, yeah, I mean, have you felt, both in writing the book and probably, I suspect, in the reception of the book, this constant questioning of, well, you know, you shouldn't really be talking about this because, after all, you're enjoying the fruits of Britain and in doing that, you lose your right to comment. Yeah, I guess I've had a huge amount of racist abuse, actually. I mean, the handwritten letters telling me to choke myself, death threats, thousands of trolling messages on social networks. And The Guardian rang me a few weeks ago and they said, oh, you know, we want to write a story about this. And I felt very self-conscious because I feel like the crap I've been getting is nothing compared to what David Olyosoga, the black historian, gets and what historians of colour, if they're women, get. But they wrote the story anyway, and they rang up William Dalrymple, the white historian of India, and he said this incredible thing. He said, you know what, I've been writing the same kind of stuff as Satnam for decades, and I've not had one message from a British writer of the kind Satnam gets. 
which actually blew my mind because it made me realize a lot of the stuff I'm getting is because of my skin color. But I get it. I think when you're talking about the British Empire, you're talking about race. You're talking about white people conquering brown people and sometimes enslaving them. And suddenly we have brown people, me and people like David Oyusoga, telling the imperial story. And this really triggers people. This really inverts the hierarchy of empire and also challenges people in a really fundamental way. Writing the book must have been one process. And then, as you say, facing the reaction to it must be rather battering. Is there any moments where you think, you know, actually, I'd rather have not done this? You know what? It has been a bit harder than I thought. One moment he really got to me. I mean, I had a whole week of trolling. And then I wrote something unrelated to empire and race for the Times. I think it was about wind farms. (laughs) And I woke up in the morning and I'd had about 20 really bitterly racist messages on the website. So then I had to get them deleted, report them, get the guy banned. Then he obviously restarted an account on another, another name and started again by the end of the day. And in the end, this guy had cost me about an hour of my day. And I think that's what racism does. It's just, it puts you at a disadvantage to your colleagues because just dealing with it takes away so much of your productive time. And I've never had that before. You know, I haven't really written about race before. I mean, not in a big way. I mean, when I was at the FT, you know, I had 10 years where I never wrote about race, hardly ever. And suddenly I'm now at the age of 44, getting vicious racism every day of my life. And that's a bit depressing, purely because I've written about our history. And I think it indicates that we've got a bit of a problem. Yeah, well, striving, as we often do to end on an optimistic note, <laughs> do, do you think that, I mean, in a way, the book is both a contribution to a conversation and a call for a conversation. Do you think that it's a rough moment precisely because the reckoning that you want is beginning? Yes, yeah, it's, it's rough if you look at the politics. I mean, po- there's no hope in party politics because at the same time as you've got the right wing, you know, weaponizing empire. You've got the left wing. I mean, Jamie Corbyn saying we need to teach the crimes of empire, which I don't think is helpful either. But I do feel like something really positive is happening amongst young people. I think they really care about Black Lives Matter. They're getting their education outside the schoolroom. You know, the Instagram accounts that talk about colonialism in actually a really intelligent way. And I feel like they're going to change everything. And maybe what we're seeing is just the death throes of the white male establishment, and uh, they're just fighting back, and it's ultimately futile. Okay. Well, as a member of the white male establishment, Satnam? (laughs) Present company accepted, man. (laughs) Thanks very much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. That was Satnam Sanghera talking to me about his book, Empire Land. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps. 